how can somebody not be brought to justice? Mm-hmm. How can this happen? You are listening to Badass, a podcast where we hold authentic conversations about the most difficult experiences life can hold for us. We explore the transformative power of these events and what they teach us about ourselves and the world. I am your host, Mirabai Rose. Welcome to Badass. Our guest today is Jennifer Crossley. Jennifer currently serves as the County Counselor for District 4 in Monroe County, Indiana, and has held this position since December 2021. Her appointment made history as she became the first Black person to sit on the council. Prior to this, she also served as the chairwoman of the Monroe County Democratic Party, also making history as the first Black person to become chairperson. She also serves as the membership chair and vice president of the Monroe County National Organization for Women chapter. Jennifer is active and engaged in her community by previously volunteering at the height of the pandemic at the Shalom Center in Bloomington, Indiana. She's also a member of the Monroe County chapter of the NAACP and a proud member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. Jennifer was born and raised in Gary, Indiana. She's a graduate of Indiana University. Jennifer resides in Bloomington with her three children and Emmy Award-winning husband, Justin. She continues to use her voice and platform to push for more women of color to be involved in the political process here in Monroe County, Indiana. To not only have a seat at the table, but to ensure that their voices are heard As she lives by the great Angela Davis quote, I am no longer accepting the things I cannot change and changing the things I can no longer accept. Today, Jennifer is here to share the story of losing her 23-year-old brother to gun violence. Jennifer was just 20 when she lost her brother. We explore the impact this had on Jennifer's family and also how it has spurred Jennifer to speak for gun control on behalf of families like hers. Jennifer, welcome to Badass. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, I'm so excited to have you here. And I've heard you speak before about losing your brother, and it's always been such a moving experience to hear that story and to know that you know, this experience not only impacted you, but also spurred you to become so passionate. Yeah. Um, I'd like to start today at the beginning of this story by asking you about who your brother was, what he valued, and where he was in his life when it was cut so short. Yeah. So our relationship was just a little complicated. Um and so I always hate seeing my half-brother because mm-hmm. it just sounds weird. Yeah. Um, but my dad had, before myself and my youngest sister um, were born, my dad had uh, a previous relationship. And out of that previous relationship came my brother. And so at the time of his passing, he was born and raised in Chicago. Very bright, loved to write. So... Growing up, you know, we would always go from Gary to Chicago on the weekends, going to go see him. 
And then as, you know, we all got older, things started shifting and things changed and we didn't really see him as much, but we still talked on the phone. And as, you know, teenagers do, they get a little rebellious and, and do different things. And so sometimes then conversations got a little bit less, but we still knew him. Uh, we still, you know, thought of him and actually... Oddly enough, I just learned this recently. He talked to my mom a lot more about things. Everybody likes to talk to my mom about things. Aww. So he he was able to talk to her, even though, you know, she was stepmom. Uh, he still was able to talk to her, um, even if he didn't really talk to my dad as much. So, you know, he got, he had some troubles throughout his teenage years and, who doesn't go through, you know, those kind of teenage stripes. Mm-hmm. And um, he was in Chicago yes. at the time. Yes, he and you was. you were living in Gary at the time. Yes. Well, at the time I was here at IU. Oh, right. And yes. so he was in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so he, you know, was changing his life, going for the better, had a fiance, had, you know, a small child at the time. And, you know, just like that, things just changed. So that was a a moment in time in which I can remember that day like it was yesterday. I remember the day. uh, I remember the phone call. I remember the time. I remember everything that was happening when it felt like my world just kind of dropped. And so my sister... My youngest sister uh, was at home in Gary. And so I was getting ready for a Disney internship interview. I was so excited about, you know, the probability of me, you know, getting out of Indiana and going to, you know, down to Florida for a semester, all of those different things. And my sister called and um, she started crying. And I knew something was wrong because A, she was in high school and this is all happening. And uh, it was right before her school. And it was a Friday Friday morning or a little after 8 o'clock. And uh, so she calls and she's crying and I'm going, something's wrong. And I'm not sure. And so in between her talking, she goes, they took the only brother we ever had. And I'm going, what? And... I think I must have made some type of noise or something because I remember my sweet mate in my dorm like ran over from her side of the bathroom to mine and opened up my door. And so she's staring at me and I'm just going, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Like on the phone. Yeah. And she's like, you couldn't comprehend. No, it was weird. Mm -hmm. And I almost feel like a state of shock. Yeah. And so she just kept repeating it. And I'm going, well, you know, at the time, since we were more of, the younger cousins, uh, I thought she was talking about our cousin. And he's like a brother to us. And I'm I'm like, but wait, what is she talking about? And so she said, Leroy, he's gone. And then it was like time just froze. It just stopped. And I'm going, oh, oh, God. Um, so it was really hearing his name, hearing your brother's name. Yeah. And so they just looked at me and then I hung up the phone and they were like, are you okay? And then I, you know, I had some tears and I was like, yeah, they just like my, my brother's gone. 
and he's dead. And so they're looking at me like, well, what else do you, what can we do to help? What else do you need? And I'm going, I got to go to my internship, like interview. Mm -hmm. And I remember walking from my dorm to here in Bloomington and it was cold because it happened in February and I'm just like, I'm crying and I'm, I'm listening to my, you know, my music as I'm going through and, and I'm like, I got to suck it up and I, I'll, I'll be fine. And I don't know what just happened, but I think, you know, still in that weird state of shock. Yeah. And, and so like we had talked about on the phone. Yeah. That's so normal. Like when somebody has crazy. a major loss, it's like your brain can't even really like take it in. And there's a oftentimes a period of time, whether it's minutes or hours, where you just, it's like, it's hovering right there, but you just can't grab onto it. Yeah. And so, you know, you're sitting there and you're just like, you know, how how much, I, I must have obviously been in so much of a shock because I literally, time didn't stop for me because in my mind, I'm still thinking, I still got to go to this internship interview. Like, I don't know what happened. Maybe somebody will call me. Maybe I'll wake up from this really bad dream and go, that was kind of messed up. So I go upstairs. I'm sitting there waiting. And then all of a sudden, I'm going through my interview. And I think that's when I sat down and they're talking to me about things related to the internship. And I'm like, I'm I'm bombing it at this point, right? Because I'm now realizing what was just told to me a little mm -hmm. bit before coming here. And I remember going through the interview and I go, I'm sorry, my brother just died and I just got a phone call about it. And they looked at me like, oh, so sorry. And I think I might've had some tears uh, like during the interview. And, you know, needless to say, I didn't get it. But, you know, I just remember after leaving there and going back to my dorm room, that's when grief and everything really started setting in for me. And then realizing, oh, oh, yeah, this happened. This this really happened. Uh, and going through the motions at the time, I was on academic probation. Uh, I didn't tell my mom, so if she listens to this podcast. Hi, Mom. A long time ago, I was on academic probation. Um, <laughs> um, you know, and I met, you know, at the time my husband and I were dating and our relationship was just so new. And I just immersed myself in all of that and just forgot everything about school. And that was midterms for me. Mm -hmm. So all of my world colliding mm -hmm. all at the same time. And I'm just like, what? I just cannot. So... Yeah. But yeah, that was how everything came to be. Yeah. Oh, what what tough timing for you. Yeah. You know, to be trying to hold this all together. Yeah. Being on your own, you know, yeah. down in Bloomington and then having to even try to begin processing something yeah. like this. I truly felt alone. I think it was in that moment that I, you know, defied, you know, coming here to Bloomington for school anyway. I wasn't supposed to be here. I wasn't supposed to be here. I was supposed to, you know, stay at home and go to school. And I had everybody, uh, quite a few people I learned after the fact that were betting on me to go back to Gary, to go back home, 
because they thought I would fail. Mm. And so this was my moment where I was like, I don't need any of this. I can just say peace out Bloomington and I can just go back home to to Gary and, and there's an IU there and I'll just go there and I'll finish up. And I'm thinking, you know, what will happen to my relationship and and all of those different things. And it was like, oh, girl, you're going to have to pull yourself together and you're going to have to get over it. And not even so much get over it, mm-hmm. but this too shall pass mm-hmm. and you will be fine. And you have people that are banking on you to go back home in the midst of all the crap is that's going on with you. And now you can do this. Mm-hmm. You got this. So, yeah. Yeah. You had to find a way to keep living your yeah. life, even though to. you were processing mm-hmm. this really hard thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When did you learn the circumstances of your brother's death? It was after... We heard stories. Um, so it was, so he died February 26th. Funeral was March 5th. And it was a few weeks after that we started learning the story. And so the story is he got into an argument with a friend. And I'd use friend with air quotes because friends don't do this. He got into an argument. It must have been very heated. He walked away. As he walked away, then apparently the friend got upset and shot him. And so to this day, 18 years later, nobody has been held accountable. Uh, It has also been said that people knew the person that did it. People knew the name. But out of fear of, you know, retaliation or whatever the case, that he has never been brought to justice, to face accountability. And so I think that haunts my family. Mm -hmm. My dad passed away last year. That was his only son. And I think that also helped my dad. I don't want to say help because nothing helps. But um, it also aided in my dad's substance use of alcohol. Uh, which ultimately last year was the cause of his demise. And so, you know, you think of that and you just go out like, how can somebody not be brought to justice? Mm -hmm. How can this happen? You know, and and his family has grown up and, you know, his uh, fiance has grown up and, you know, my niece has, she's older now and she has her life and I've moved on and she has a child and, you know, things like that. And so all of these things have happened and we're still grieving. Yeah. Like there's not a day that goes by every July 1st that rolls around. That's his birthday. I'm always thinking of him. February 26th, every time that date, I always say that I have a love-hate relationship with the month of February. Uh, it's supposed to be a month of love. It's Black History Month. It's also the month that, you know, Justin and I started dating. Uh, but, you know, that's also the the month of loss for me. Yeah. Um, and I find it very difficult and hard. And especially in the work that I do here, knowing that that happened to my brother and knowing that nobody has ever been brought 
to justice or held accountable. You know, it, it shapes my way of thinking about things here in terms of, you know, accountability and, you know, criminal justice reform or any of that stuff. But at the end of the day, like my brother is a victim to this and he will never see the light of day again. He will mm-hmm. never see my kids. I never got a chance to see my kids. Yeah. Um, never got to meet my husband. Never got to see a lot of things. So, you know, that's it's hard. I, I feel like I'm getting a little choked up mm-hmm. <laughs> thinking about it now, even though it's been 18 years. You never get over it. You just yeah. learn how to grow with the pain and you grow up and move on with that person not being here anymore, especially the way and the manner that they died. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's something. And I imagine it's so frustrating because it sounds like it would not have been difficult for, you know, if the, you know, police department had spent any energy You know, this was pretty public. A lot of people knew what happened. It really wouldn't have been that hard to find the person and arrest him and bring him to justice. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, it's difficult because um, you just, you just don't know. You like, you don't know, especially because of, of, um, you just... In that particular area, especially for some of us in the Black community, when you witness a crime or you know of something, unfortunately, there's this fear of people having to be retaliated against because they spoke up and they saw something. So oftentimes we say, if you see something, say something. But sometimes um, in our communities, if you see something, that's the opposite, like you go back in your corner and you don't say anything. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there are people that are watching you to make sure that you're not saying anything or will intimidate you to the point where if you think you are going to say something to authorities, then, you know, we're going to intimidate you enough to make sure that you you won't say anything and we will harm you if you do. And then also, you know, speaking of, you know, at the, it's no surprise that, you know, Chicago has a lot of gun violence. And that is something that happens every single day. Um, but it's also no surprise that because of the amount of people that get murdered or shot on a daily basis, it's just another number. Yeah. And I hate the fact that my brother has been another number in a statistic, in an epidemic you know, that he, that he is. So, you know, there's a lot of coulda, woulda, shouldas that float around every day and uh, you just wait and see what happens. Yeah. And you know so much more about this than I do, but, you know, I was also just thinking what a strange position it must be to be a black person in a city like Chicago and weighing the decision, should I turn to the criminal justice system yeah. to try to get justice for somebody? Because I would imagine that the criminal justice system is such a a place of injustice yeah. for people who are yeah. black that like that must be a really hard call in a way. It's hard. There's a lot of you know distrust 
um, in communities. And, and there's there's reasons for that, right? And so, and and this is also not to say, if, and if anybody's listening, um, like, oh, you know, she's going down and heavy on the cups and and things like that and 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 the system. But I want to be perfectly clear, the system was only it's built for how it's supposed to work. And for folks that look like me, it it feels very unjust. Mm-hmm. It, it 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 has, you know, and I always listen to Representative Ayanna Presley and she always talks about the criminal injustice system Mm -hmm. and how do we work around that? And we have, and, you know, black and brown communities, there are lots of things that we're fighting, lots of things. And, you know, going to, you know, seeking out justice um, because, you know, here's another thing. When I tell my story, there's, and I said this here in Bloomington uh, in this progressive, and I use that with air quotes community. I was telling somebody, heard the story of my brother. And I was talking to these two women about my brother. And uh, as I finished my, you know, story about him and one lady spoke and she goes, oh, I'm so sorry to hear about your brother. And then that must be very hard for you. And I, you know, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And then her comment to me was, was he in a gang? And before I could respond, the other woman that was there, like, basically laid into the other woman and go, how dare you? How, like, she just said, and even if he was, what difference does it make? His life did not need to be snuffed out and taken away from him like that. So, you know, there's also that stigma of people going around thinking, oh, he must have been a criminal. Oh, he must have been a thug or he must have been all of those things. Yeah. So that still deserved him to die in the way that he did. Mm. Really? Okay. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of stereotypes that go out there, especially when you hear Chicago gun violence, murder, mm-hmm. all of that is just, you know, I'd see people that look at me when I tell my story sometimes and it's like, Oh, I wonder what he did mm. to deserve that. Or I wonder what he did, you know? So, Yeah. 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 And that makes what you are doing, you know, telling this story publicly a pretty brave thing because it does make you vulnerable. Yeah, it does. And it puts me in a uncomfortable comfort zone for me because I don't it it brings up a lot of emotion for me to continue to say it. And and like I said, I just sat here as as I'm talking about it. and I knew we were going to be talking about it, and but it still doesn't make it easier. And you still get a little choked up thinking about, you know, you thinking about him, the choices that were made, you know, maybe if he just didn't get into that fight, maybe, you know, maybe if he didn't turn and walk away, what would have happened? Um, Whatever the case is, what was this fight really about? That's another thing that we really don't know. All mm-hmm. I know is... It was a fight. There was an argument. There was a fight. He walked away, and that's what happened. Yeah. So, you know, telling my story. I always heard this thing, um, make your mess your message and your test your testimony. And so when I say, when I hear that, I'm like, I always shudder to not tell things. And sometimes my family's like, why are you going out here saying this stuff? And it's like, because I can help somebody. And it fuels my passion 
as a public servant and the work that I do and go, hey, I know about this because this is my personal testament and this is my personal story. This is why I think in the manner that I do. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to go back in time a little bit to kind of the, you know, the years after your brother's death, you know, the first five, ten years. I just, I always feel like it's um, something that's not talked about enough in our culture, like how it really changes a family when you lose somebody. It changes every holiday. It changes and then your dad, you know, it sounds like it really, really impacted yeah. your dad and that, you know, he already had been coping with his stress by drinking, mm-hmm. but this was kind of a turning point where he started yeah. to spiral into some really out of control drinking. It did. My dad was a Vietnam veteran, won a Purple Heart. Um, I got a Purple Heart uh, and, uh, you know, suffered in silence from PTSD. And his coping mechanism was, you know, his choice of alcohol. And, you know, it got to the point where it got worse once what happened to my brother happened. And I feel like he suffered silence because, you know, sometimes as a Black community, and especially Black men, when they're going through certain things... They don't like to talk or express their feelings. Mm -hmm. And so it's more of, I don't need to say this, or I don't know if it's this macho thing, or, you know, quick to dismiss and suppress their feelings and emotions. Um, And, you know, instead of showing people how vulnerable and how open you can just be and to seek the help, professional help, or just to say, I am not okay, he turned further into alcohol. Mm -hmm. And I've seen this with my dad my entire life. I'm 39. And, you know, like I said last year, that helped contribute to his death. And he, you know, tried to get him help, tried to get him to speak up a little bit more about it. And it was more of, I'm fine. I don't need that. I don't need anybody telling me, you know, any of that stuff. So that hurt Mm -hmm. knowing that, you know, and my brother and my dad had the same name. So knowing that your namesake died in the manner that they did, you know, they always say that nobody wants to bury their child. Well, that's what my dad had to do. Yeah. And then, you know, as a family, it's weird. It was, you know, at the time, um, Evanescence had the song My Immortal, and it played so much. And going through the grief that, you know, I was going through when my brother died, I could not listen to that song. So anytime that song came on the radio, I'd immediately shut it off. Like I'd be in my car with my boyfriend and and uh, now husband, and it would come on and it's his car. I would shut it off and mm-hmm. look at me and I'm like, I can't hear it. La 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 la. I can't hear it. To this day, I can tell you, I can still not listen to that song. Mm-hmm. I've tried a few different times, and every time I try to listen to it. 
I don't think I can get through without not crying. Mm-hmm. Even now. <laughs> yeah. Like just even thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, just thinking about it, yeah. just telling you the story about it. I don't know why. And I also think that it's a like a breakup song, but it's but it it's a breakup song to my grief. Like it's a breakup yeah. song because I just lost my brother. Yeah. And so that sense of loss in the song it, just yeah. really nailed something. It it does. And so you know, I think I look at my youngest sister, um, you know, seeing how our family has changed over, you know, and how it has made like, you know, five years and all the way up until now. It's, you know, we're missing that male family figure yeah. in our life. Like we now have like our uncles are all gone. They, you know, have deceased and, and now our father is gone. And we never really had, you know, our brother there and and some of the important aspects of our life. And so you miss that. And it's just really difficult. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we had talked earlier about how, you know, your brother had kind of been living his own life in Chicago. And, you know, you grew up in Gary and, you know, came to IU and Mm -hmm. how you had drifted apart a little bit yeah. during that period of time as had your dad and your sister. Yeah. But I think when when you have a loss of a family member from whom you have drifted apart from a bit, there's this real sense of longing for the chance to have connected. Yep. It's like you you not only, you know, lost him, but you kind of lost this. Yeah. Cuz I I think we all have in the back of our mind like, well, you know, we'll get back to talking. Yeah. We'll get back to seeing each other. Yep. And then you you then you don't get that chance. Yeah. And then he's not here to see yeah. who you are becoming. Yeah. What the life is that you've built, your yeah. children. It's that it's all of that. And you know, that happened times too last year when my father passed. We because listening to my dad go through the hurt and the pain of life and knowing that, you know, you don't have your your son here and, you know, his coping mechanism was drinking and I knew I couldn't talk to him in that manner. I couldn't listen to the hurt every single time I would call. It would be, you know, oh, he's 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 doing it. And um you know, and when it was told to me that my dad died unexpectedly, you know, it was like, oh, my God, uh, here we go again. There's another loss that I, I was thinking, you know, if I just had one, maybe if I just would have called, maybe if I just would have done, you know, any of that. So not, you know, only do I deal that. I think about that with my dad. I also think about that with my brother. Mm-hmm. You know, while I was in college, maybe I could have called, you know, my mom would say, hey, I heard from your brother. And, oh, how's he doing? And, you know, and she would say how he was doing. And, oh, well, did he talk to dad? No. Um, you know, just so I'm trying to live my life now and trying to reach out to people when I haven't talked to them in a while or just put in grievances and crap all aside and just really reaching out because you just never know mm-hmm. when that time comes where you just do the shoulda, woulda, coulda again and you just 
that loss, it, it haunts you. I literally am going through therapy dealing with a lot of this stuff because it hurts. It yeah. hurts a lot. And it's really not uncommon that it takes a while to yeah. even be able to really start to dig in. Yeah. You know, it's just, it feels like it's sat on your shoulder for so long, yeah. but it's painful. It does. And it is. Yeah. 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 <sighs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So your family really went through it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, it led you to become an advocate for gun control. Yeah. But there was another uh, situation in your life that also uh, is something that has, you know, moved you to try to do something about the prevalence of guns in the world. And that was uh, a classmate of yours when you were yep. quite young. Seventh grade. Yeah. So in middle school, I'll also remember this. It also, that's another reason why I have my grievance with the month of February because my classmate also was killed in February too, like right around Valentine's Day. Um, Melinda Underwood, I will never forget her name. She, I remember we had uh, social studies together, sat in the same area in our class. Uh, you know, sometimes as teenagers, we all grow up thinking that we're grown and, you know, if you get – our bodies are changing and, you know, people are starting to notice things and, and they're liking us and and we want people to like us and, and notice, you know, all aspects of us. And so I, I say that because I could see her evolution through seventh grade and she was quiet. And um, but then, you know, you started hanging out with different types of crowds. And I remember her getting dropped off one day at school. And then I remember, you know, me getting dropped off. Like we were all going into school at the same time. And then I noticed, you know, I think she skipped school. And then I noticed in our classroom, you know, she wasn't there. And not thinking anything of it. Hey, you know, we had people skip school all the time or, you know, would leave. And then the next day she wasn't there again but I was hearing people cry and, and talk about things. And so what happened was she was at the wrong place at the wrong time, skipped school. The person, I guess, was looking for her boyfriend. And because she was associated with him at this place where they were, they also, um, whoever it was, came in, shot up, you know, the house. And she was one of the victims and she died. Hmm. And so it's like, wow, in seventh grade, when, you know, you should be thinking of a whole plethora of things that teenagers think about in seventh grade, I, I have to look at this empty seat in my classroom because I'm noticing that, you know, she's not there yeah. because she's gone and her life is gone. Um and that really changed, that That was a lot. And then, you know, after that, now realizing that I've had, you know, kids from elementary, middle, and high school that I grew up with, you know, their demise was met with, you know, with a gun, um, you know, being shot and killed and, and those different types of things. And and it's, it's sad. And so, yes, it has 
you know, made me an advocate for gun control and, you know, a voice to speak out, which is, you know, what I continue to do and what I like to continue to do because oftentimes when you look at these groups and we look at people that talk about, you know, gun violence, um, we talk a lot about mass shootings and, you know, we talk about and not saying that those shouldn't be talked about because, yes, they should be talked about. We shouldn't have mass shootings in schools and synagogues and churches and and malls and movie theaters and and all of those things. We shouldn't have that. And we shouldn't have the access to these firearms that these perpetrators have. But when we talk about the gun violence and you see these innocent faces you know, that come up on the screen, it is so sad and it is so, it's terrible. But oftentimes those that are in the inner cities and in urban cities such as, you know, Gary or Chicago or, and, you know, now in Indianapolis, those faces are often not associated with, you know, the faces that we see from mass shootings. And I wanted to make sure that my brother... Melinda, or any of the folks that I've known, or anybody else that dies in these communities are talked about just the same as anybody else that has died um, through gun violence. Yes. Because those are faces that we don't often see uh, and we don't hear about. Yeah. And they are also tragedies. Yes. And they are also people. Exactly. And they're people they were here. who have families. Yep. Yeah. They were here and they should be talked about. They had dreams. They had goals. They had everything else. It doesn't matter what city that they were in. It doesn't matter what side of town that they were on. It doesn't matter, you know, if they lived in a crime riddled neighborhood. It doesn't matter, you know, like... None of those circumstances matter. What mattered is them mm -hmm. and the families and everything else that they've left behind. What also matters is why this continues to keep happening and what are we doing about it? What are our lawmakers? What are our elected officials? What are they doing about this? How are we combating this problem? How are we combating this, this, this issue? And how can we ensure that this cannot happen again. Just look at what the state of Indiana just did in July in terms of open carry. We've made it now extremely open and easily accessible for people to walk around and just, you know, with permitless carry and going around like this is just a, a country western now. Yeah. Um, it's very scary to me. And you know, I, I listen sometimes about, you know, the crime that happens in Chicago areas. And if you know that people like officials in the Chicago area often say, you know, they are, Illinois has the most comprehensive, you know, gun like restrictions, all of that other stuff. Well, next door to Illinois is a little old state called Indiana. Right. And we have a very non-restrictive. So, you know, Chicago being as close to Gary, you can go right across um, through state lines and get whatever you want Yeah, and bring it right back. And it's, it's okay. Yeah. For people not in the Midwest, Chicago and Gary are incredibly close mm -hmm. to each other. Like 20 minutes. Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah. Chicago's just right on the mm-hmm. border. So mm-hmm. it's it does feel like Indiana is uh, really sabotaging yes. the efforts of yeah. Illinois. And we don't care. Some of us don't care about that. And I know that lawmakers, before this law went into effect uh, July 1st of this year, you know, you had law enforcement, you know, that some people say that they respect, you know, so much. It came to lawmakers in Indianapolis saying, this is not okay. What you are doing is not okay. And we will have more innocent people die because of this law that will go into effect. And you would think those same lawmakers who like to think that they are at one, you know, with law enforcement, basically gave the middle finger to law enforcement and said, we we hear you, but we're still going to do it, you know. And to think that you had law enforcement go and and testify at the state house of saying this cannot happen. You are putting people at risk. And for Indiana lawmakers to decide to go against the grain of law enforcement and not to listen and to do this anyway is a travesty. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's scary. And, and we'll continue to do, you know, what we do. And, and I'll continue to do what I do. You know, all politics are local. And so I will continue to use my voice and my story and my and anything else to amplify anybody else and, and to amplify, you know, the goals of us needing to really work for the greater good of our communities and to tell the stories because if we're not telling our stories, then we're not changing the hearts and minds of people. Um, and I know it's hard and I know it's tough right now and and especially everything that continues to happen, but I'm going to continue to tell my story and my brother's story until there's no more life left in me. Mm-hmm. Um, and even after there's no more love or life left in me, I know somebody else that knows his story um, will continue to tell his story. So I will continue to talk until I'm blue in the face um, and and we'll, you know, keep getting it out there. Yeah. Something that I really appreciate about the way you share your story is it feels so clear that this is a lifelong impact. It is. Losing your brother this way mm-hmm. has affected you for your entire life mm-hmm. and probably always to an extent will. Yeah. And I think that's so important for people to recognize, you know, when yeah. you lose somebody, especially to violence, it's it's not something that you just get over. No. And you can't tell people to just get over it. Nobody, I always hate hearing and, and cringe a little when I hear people say, oh, well, they'll get over it. No, no, they won't. No, it's you learn to navigate spaces without them. So Mm -hmm. I never get over it. I never got over it. I'm working through it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what any that would be my, you know, suggestion to anybody that's going through any type of grief. But a violent grief such as this, you will there are times where you will not be okay, but there are times that you will be okay. Mm -hmm. And those times that you will be okay will outweigh those bad times. 
And it sounds cliche, but when you just dig deep and think of a happy moment, sometimes when I'm in a deep, dark state of depression, I think of those moments. Um, I let myself feel all the feels. So if I want to cry, I'm going to cry it out. Um, It's okay to not be okay. Mm -hmm. And then I give myself some time, you know, and then I will keep moving because my life isn't stopping because my brother isn't here anymore. And so now I have to continue to move forward and I have to live my life. And that's what I would think that he would want me to do. Yeah. I love the way you just described that. Yeah. You know, I think that's really wise that, you know, we can't uh, avoid the pain, but we can move through the pain. Yeah. We can work with it and move through it so that it's not constantly, you know, pushing us down. You can't. You can't let it consume you. I've let it consume me and it turned me into a very angry person where I had this chip on my shoulder that, you know, nothing anybody said could make me happy. You know, my relationships and um, personal and friendship, you know, relationships and even relationships with, you know, my relationship with my husband. Uh, you know, I again, as I said this earlier, I'll say it again, I'm going through therapy. There are lots of things and I think people have to use those tools and not think that, oh, you know, you're a weak person because you're going through therapy. No, you're actually a really strong ass person because you are going through that and you are allowing yourself to have all those spills. And it's grief is a process. Mm -hmm. It's a journey that all of us will either have to go through or have gone through at some point. And it's a process that continues. It doesn't have to consume you, but it's something that you can work through. Mm -hmm. And please tell me if I get this wrong. Mm -hmm. But I was just thinking that, you know, when you're carrying this this personal grief, right, Mm -hmm. around something like gun violence, and then, you know, we have a period of time like we did in June of 2020 where – gun violence perpetrated by police officers Mm -hmm. against black people Mm -hmm. is suddenly Mm -hmm. everywhere. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking about how, you know, for you, and I I imagine you could extrapolate that to a lot of black and brown people like Mm -hmm. that have these like personal experiences. Mm -hmm. Like that must be so intense to be carrying these, this personal grief and then just seeing it splash across all your social media, all the TV. 2020 was a very um, depressed year for me. Uh, You know, I kept saying, especially because it's a pandemic, you know, one way that you can get through grief sometimes for me is I, I have to be around people. I have to see people. Well, can't because it was in the era of COVID, You have to stay away from people. Um, And so actually, it's funny that you mentioned this because I was going through my computer and I was trying to delete some stuff because my, you know, my storage was full. And I saw one of the ways that I handle my grief is I do like little videos. So no more than three minutes. 
I'll record something on my phone and I'll go back as a journey for me as to go back and to, you know, see these things. And I actually saw a video from right before George Floyd, um, but it was after we start, it was actually a week and a half before George Floyd. And this is at the time that we were learning about Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. Mm -hmm. And I literally said in that video that I watched yesterday, um, I think I have PTSD. And, you know, and it was like my aha light bulb moment just went off because as you continue to see, you know, Ahmaud Arbery running down the street, getting gunned down yeah. by vigilantes. And I say vigilantes with air quotes. Um, and then you see some woman, Breonna Taylor, is sleeping in her home, in her own bed. And they did a no-knock warrant. And we know the end of that story, which resulted in her getting shot up in her home and her end up being dead. She's not yeah. here anymore. Yes. And, you know, hearing those things and then seeing... In 2016, uh, Philando Castile, who was in his car with his partner and a child and his child and, you know, getting pulled over, a simple pull over and, and him being shot to death. Yeah. And he also being a, 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 a citizen who was a member of the NRA, who was legally carrying a gun, yeah. who told officer, I got a gun and was, you know, doing all of those right things that you're supposed to do, or, and I say that again with air quotes, that you're supposed to do. Um, and, you know, having that all happen and listening to this, and I'm going, oh, my God, this is PTSD. Yes. You know, this is some form of it because, you know, those same people that were supposed to go and tell when there's been a crime that's committed are committing those crimes against people that look like me. Yeah. So again, you know, how do some of us feel safe with going to law enforcement and going to them and saying, you, you know, what has happened when you see those people harming black and brown people? Now, mm -hmm. again, I say that and I don't want people to think like, oh, she's totally anti-police and you know, things like that. I, I know of law enforcement in my family. I know of law enforcement, you know, locally that we know and, and respect. But I also know that to, you know, get respect, you have to give, like, you you have to give it too. Mm -hmm. And I just wish that, you know, those bad apples that we continue to talk about are out of the communities that we are supposed to be protecting and serving. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's hard. And I have, you know, reservations sometimes when I see, you know, law enforcement yeah. as a black woman, you know, getting pulled over uh, sometimes, you know, wondering about my husband, if he got pulled over as a big black man, um, you know, driving SUV around South Central Indiana. Yeah. Um, is that going to be, you know, his demise mm -hmm. of, you know, getting mad at him if he doesn't call me by a certain time? And, you know, just thinking about all of those different things, it definitely gives me PTSD mm -hmm. um, to think about that. And I know that I think that I know there are a lot more other people that, you know, have the same 
type of thoughts. There's many different avenues of gun violence. Gun um, police gun violence is still gun violence, full stop. Like, mm-hmm. so, you know, we have to think about those things as well. And so when I see that, like, let's also talk about the like when we're talking about gun violence, we can't go, oh, well, you know, that's that's a different type. No, no, no. It's the same thing. Same yeah. thing. Yeah. And I really appreciate that point. Mm-hmm. I do. Because yeah. I do think there's a lot of messed up racial dynamics in the gun debate. Yes. Right? Same thing. When we think about, especially with the gun debate, we and we talked about this, when, you know, there's mass shootings that continue to happen, it's usually perpetrated by a young white male. Mm-hmm who got an AR-15, a legal way, you know, a parent, whether a parent got it for him or, you know, they went to go get it on their own legally. We see these and I see people want to talk about, this is the time where mental health gets put into the conversation. Oh, well, you know, there's must've been something wrong. Got to look into the history of, you know, why this young man was so troubled and, you know, want to dive deep into his family's lifestyle and, and um, you know, want to go into details. Tell me what kind of child was he? And I'm like, this is BS. Like, mm-hmm. no, this is terrorism. Like, yeah, the, yeah he the, at some point he was troubled and he was messed up and jacked up. Um, but also this is terrorism at its core and finest. But you know, what a young black man or, you know, somebody from a black and brown community, um, you know, die at the hands of a gun. And we look at this and we go, oh, those thugs there. And then you want to find all of the pictures possible of them in, you know, compromising ways, whether they're, you know, hanging out with other young black and brown folks or want to call him a thug and they didn't matter and they probably were in a gang and, and all of that stuff. Look at how we vilified Mike Brown when he died in the hands of law enforcement. Yeah. We, you know, called him all kind of names and, and, and all of that stuff and want to look in and want to also stereotype our communities of they're crime riddled anyway, so they don't really care or any of that yeah. matter. Um, yeah, it's the <laughs> your racism and privilege are showing, and it's so disgusting. Mm-hmm. Um, not you, <laughs> but <laughs> no, no, I, I totally got not it. Not <laughs> you, but you know, America in general. When we when we take those two blaring differences and say, "Oh, there's mental health," you know, let's look at you know what happened in this community, and then oh, that's just a thug right there. I'm glad that's one less thug off this street. Right. We need martial yeah. law. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Let's go ahead and just wipe it off. And and this is where we need to make sure that we are uh, funding our police and all this other. Just just stop. Just yeah. Just stop. Yeah. yeah. As a white person, I can be slow on the uptake sometimes, but I do remember the first time I heard somebody on the right say we need martial law in Chicago. That's when it really clicked for me. I was like, oh, my God. So they're willing to put, like, the strictest, uh, I mean, 
insane, you know, yeah. uh, restrictions on a community of color because of guns, yep. right? Because that was the argument because the gun yeah. problem is so out of control. Yep. But at the in the same breath, they would argue that any white person should be able to have no restrictions to yep. guns. Even more, even more. And, and want to defend the fact that that was, you know, well, they got illegal and there's really nothing that you can do about it. And I actually remember growing up in the 90s in Gary and remember it was at the height of a lot of gun violence that was happening. And I do believe they wanted to send National Guard into our community and going, okay. And, you know, I think, I think people are thinking, oh, this is good. Like we need help. But in my head and as a grown up now thinking, what the hell are we doing? Like we need resources. These communities need help in terms of not more militarization of, you know, force, but what is this community lacking? I did want to ask you kind of one question to to wrap things up um, because I'm I'm curious about it and I feel like it's gonna make me smile. Um, if if I could wave a magic wand and just put you like totally in charge, right, <laughs> like queen of the world, <laughs> a question I get asked often: <laughs> What would gun laws look like? Oh, that is a that is not a question I get asked often. I always get the so what else do you want to run for? Um, and I'm like, eh, nothing, not right now. Um, what would gun laws to me look for if it was Jen Crossley's world? Um, I could tell you, no civilian would have access to AR-15s or assault rifles. Mm-hmm. Any type of weaponry, weaponry that is used in, in, in war, in combat, in military, any type of anything that is militarized, you would have no place. Like, it has no place. Mm-hmm. It has no place at all. Um, that's, that's for starters. Um, also go back and forth with, you know, the idea of, you know, feeling people feeling like they can protect themselves by having a gun. That is not for me and my family. I've had people go, oh, well, you know, you should think about getting a gun. You know, considering all the things that continue to happen, you should consider it. I don't, it's not for me. Um, maybe that's for other people. And so I I say that to say that I kind of go back and forth and think of, you know, what does that look like if, you know, we went to a guns-free society? Mm-hmm. If other, you know, societies have done so and they, you know, don't have any other issues with things, I wonder what our society would look like, like in terms of New Zealand mm-hmm. and other, you know, countries that have very strict gun laws. You know, they don't have mass shootings. They don't have, you know, homicide rates such as we have yeah and i you know and people say before you dismiss you know oh well we just we just can't do that we just can't do that we just can't do that well why can't we yeah doesn't hurt to try that's what we tell our kids you know hey it it doesn't hurt to try Mm -hmm. so i dare take it a step further and go what would our society look like if we didn't have guns 
I think that's such an important question yeah. to ask ourselves. Yeah. I, I like to think that we can dream big. And oh boy, look at the things that we could fund and all the resources that we could have if we didn't have, you know, these types of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what it would look like for me. I, I, I like that yeah. vision. Yeah. <laughs> My wand. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see a world yeah. where you were at the, yes. at the helm. <laughs> one day, one day. Until then, I'll I'll just keep doing my little five foot self. <laughs> well, you do it yeah, good. You do thank it good. you. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for coming this in. This is awesome. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Hello, listeners. I hope you enjoyed your time with Jennifer Crossley. I know I really enjoyed being in the studio with her. After I walked away from that interview, I realized that Jennifer was the first guest I didn't describe as a badass during the interview. I've been thinking about why that might be, and I think it is because Jennifer was describing some real and present grief. And I didn't want to minimize that by jumping to the recognition of her resilience. I think too often in our culture, we don't hold space for women of color to express their pain. We minimize their voices and their experiences by interrupting their expression of pain and laying the label of resilient or strong on them. If that woman is trying to tell us that actually she feels really vulnerable right now and we're telling her that she is strong, we are gaslighting her. I am certainly not saying that women of color are somehow weak. I believe the opposite. I think women of color have an incredible amount of courage. Just to walk out of your door day after day into a world that constantly dismisses you is an extremely brave thing to do. It takes a great deal of fortitude. When I look at Jennifer, at all she has accomplished and all she does for our community, I do think of her as a badass, a total badass. I hope that our community and the bigger world can become better listeners. And that's a wrap for season one. Thank you so much to all of you who have listened, shared our episodes, and helped us grow. Check out our Facebook page at Badass Bloomington and start a conversation or like us. I will post our GoFundMe where you can get a badass t-shirt or sticker just by donating to support us. Check out the episodes on my website, maribyrose.com, where you can see Laura Gordon's fantastic artwork for each one. My book, Holding Hope, One Family's Odyssey Through Lyme Disease and Psychosis, is now available on Amazon. If you want to see me in your local home turf, talk to your local bookstore about hosting me for a reading. Thanks again for tuning in and creating a community of listeners. We are in this together. Badass would not be possible without the support of several people who have donated their skills to the show. First of all, Kevin Evans, who has volunteered his time recording and editing the show. Thank you, Kevin. Another big thanks to Austin Lucas and his record label Last Chance Records, for allowing us the use of his original music. In addition, we would like to thank Kate Long and her band, Rodeola, for the use of their original music. 
Finally, a big thanks to the badass team's life partners, Alex and Amy, who have made do without us on weekends and evenings as we have been holed up working on the show.